Well, hey, everybody. Welcome. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And um, tonight we're going to talk about step six and step seven. And um, the majority of what we're going to be, you know, referring to, what I'm going to be referring to is going to come out of the AA 12 and 12, because the big book kind of gives it, you know, like a paragraph, right? Like a little bit. And I think, um, you know, so I'll jump in, I'll read what's in the big book, and then I'll kind of share back and forth. And, um, you know, I want to preface it by saying that um, because it's only given like a paragraph or so in the big book, it's, I think it's often an overlooked step. And I think it's a step six and seven. I think they're really important steps because they're all about changing. They're all about transformative actions, transformative positions. And this entire process is a process of transformation. It's a change. And, um, and so it's not something um, that's like, a, it's not something that's insignificant. It's pretty crucial. And I, I usually say step six is, the work of my lifetime. It's something that I repeatedly look at, examine, come back to. Um, so step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. In the big book, page 76 says, if we can answer to our satisfaction, we then look at step six. Right? We look at step six, meaning we're going to spend some examination. We're going to spend time looking at it. Um, we've emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can we now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. So step six emphasizes willingness, that willingness is indispensable, meaning you can't, you can't skip willingness. You can't do it without willingness. Um, and I like to think that willingness is, um, is made up of two really essential components. Willingness, in my opinion, is made of desperation and hope. When people say like, I, I need willingness, how do you get willing? Means that you're really desperate, means that what you've been doing on your own hasn't worked. And that it means that you have hope that what's being suggested is gonna work, has, has a shot, has a chance. So for, for for this purpose, willingness means taking action. Actions that you might not like, you don't even have to understand them, but I, I do them because everything else has failed. And for me, I have to say, it always came down to being out of options. The thing that made me the most willing of all is when my options disappeared when then there were no other options left. It was kind of easy for to be willing. And um, 
I never, I, I found out, you know, I never let go of anything that's still enjoyable and easily managed, right? So if I'm still really enjoying it, and it's still easily managed, um, I'm not so uncomfortable that I'm willing to do anything different about it. And, you know, so it's gotta reach a point of tremendous discomfort and frustration. And what I learned about myself is that I am extremely stubborn. I'm a very stubborn person with an incredibly high threshold for pain. You know, um, and I think many of us who've suffered have tremendous abilities to walk through tremendous pain, you know, because this disease is, is painful. It's really painful. Um, and, you know, so I'm willing when I'm desperate, right? And yet desperation alone is not enough because I need the other essential component, right? If it's just desperation, then I'm just desperate and I do nothing. I'm desperate. I throw up my hands in the air and there's no action to take. There's nothing I'm willing to do, but I, I get hope, right? And what gives me hope? Seeing others who've experiencing, who are experiencing successful lives and who once were as much, you know, of a screw up as me. That's what gave me hope people um, who shared their stories. And this is why we're told to share our stories of transformation, because it's to give others hope. We tell people where we were, what happened to us, and how we are today. And we show up, right, demonstrating how we are today. And that gives people hope, right? That helps people become willing. Um, it gives the still sick and suffering, you know, that, that there's, that there's an opportunity here. And, you know, so those that have recovered told me that these were the actions they took. This is what I did. And so I was like, all right, then I'll do that. I'll do my best to do what you did. And, and that's been true of all of the steps, right? Not just step six where I'm gonna be willing to have my defects removed, it, you know, um, but in all of the steps I need to demonstrate willingness. And it seems like a no brainer, right? That you do your inventory, you sit down with your sponsor, you go through, you find out all your defects and all the things and it's like, well, of course you should be willing to have these defects removed, right? And it doesn't even sound like, it's gonna be like, you're doing that much anyway, right? It's like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm willing to have the removed. And in fact, you know, since the big book just gives it a paragraph, I, I think people erroneously assume that it's like a quick fix. Yes, I'm willing, okay, I ask, and now it's done. You know, because why wouldn't I want them removed? You know, after all, I found out that they're causing me to live an unsatisfying life right? That's what I found out in my inventory. And they're keeping me, my defects were keeping me resentful and filled with fear. But when I look closely, I'm not so sure that I want the defect removed. I think mostly what I wanted was the consequences associated with the defect removed. 
I wanted what pain it was causing me to move. And step six in the OA, you know, this is like just a brief little paragraph from the OA that I'm going to grab. Um, I think it says it really well on page 47 in the OA 12 and 12. It says, we're powerless over each of our defects of character, just as we were powerless over the food. Our character defects need to be removed by a power greater than ourselves. We cannot do it alone, right? And does this mean we shouldn't try to change our behavior until our higher power changes us? Should we continue being dishonest, intolerant, and all the rest? Of course not. Being entirely ready means that we firmly turn our backs on the old self-destructive behaviors and make every attempt, every effort to live by the principles embodied in the 12 steps, trying to practice the new thinking and behaviors to the best of our ability shows true willingness to change. So it's up to me to take every effort, to make every effort to live as though the defects have been removed. I have to do everything in my human power and, you know, compare it to the effort that we make to be abstinent, right? I'm going to compare it there since they compared it there. Clearly, we all know that we do not remove the desire. I knew, I know that no matter what work I did, I did not remove my own desire to eat compulsively. God did that for me. That's God does that for us. But, you know, what I say is um, I still had to go to the store and buy the vegetables, right? I still had to sit down, pen and paper, make a food plan, had to make sure that there's batteries in my scale, whatever it is I have to do, that's for me to do. I have to make every effort just the same. I have to make every effort to live by spiritual principles. I need to exert effort to be honest, self-disciplined, loving, perseverant, seek spiritual direction and self-sacrificing. Those are things that I have to make effort to do, right? And step six in the AA 12 and 12, page 67. Now we're back to the AA 12 and 12. Now we're gonna talk a little bit about um, some of the, some of the um, difficulty that we have, why, why it is that I say like, wasn't so much the defect I wanted removed, but it was the consequences. So now let's look at, let's look at this a little bit. Page 67 says, self-righteous anger can also be very enjoyable, right? I, I like being mad, self-righteous and mad. And in a perverse way, we can actually take satisfaction from the fact that many people annoy us for it brings a comfortable feeling of superiority. And then it says gossip barbed with our anger, a polite form of murder by character assassination. I mean, that just sounds so ugly, right? Murder by character assassination has its satisfactions for us too. Here, we are not trying to help those we criticize, we're trying to proclaim our own righteousness. 
So what does this look like? Well, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I actually discovered that I enjoyed some of my resentments, that I felt oddly powerful in being self-righteous and having self-righteous indignation. I felt like puffed up. And, you know, what would happen for me is people, someone would annoy me. Someone would do something that bothered me. And, and yep, it was clearly wrong of them. And then I would retell that story to everybody, right? I would just keep retelling it. And every time I told it, it fueled that self-righteous anger. I was justified. I had every right to be angry. And it, there was like a hit. I got like a hit off of this. And, you know, I could get a lot of, a lot out of, I could squeeze a lot out of a minor slight. And the more I told it, the greater my resentments got. They grew, they grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, what I, what I would explain and compare it to is um, normal people speak about venting. They're like, I just need to vent. But for the alcoholic, for the compulsive overeater, venting is not good. Venting is keeping anger alive. And what I say is, if you look at a fire, if you want the fire to burn really big, vent it. Add some oxygen, right? Open up the vent and the flames get really big. But if I want it to die, I have to be willing to put, let it put out, let it be put out. And so venting is not, venting is not okay. Venting for me is not okay. Venting is how I demonstrate that I'm not willing to let go of my resentments, right? So, um, you know, another thing that we would do is gossip and complain. And I'd say it's also like gossiping and complaining, like venting makes things grow bigger. And I'd say, I'm gonna compare it to the food because it, it said it before, like, you know, like this idea that we know that God removes the desire, but we've got to do the footwork. Right. If I want to be relieved of the desire to eat potato chips, um, best my best bet is to not go to the store to buy them. Right. I'm not going to run to the store in a moment when I don't feel anything and go buy that. And if I want to be relieved of my of my self-righteous indignation, um, I don't go to places. I don't seek out opportunities and places to gossip and complain. And what I'd say is, you know, it started out very enjoyable and tasty and harmless, just like the potato chips. Only when I gossip and complain, just like the potato chips, it went on endlessly. I couldn't stop, right? It builds and builds and builds. And when I'm done, I'm left feeling greasy and sick. Like I don't actually feel better. I feel worse. The problem got bigger. And step six meant that I was willing to let go of this pastime, the pastime of gossiping as a demonstration of my willingness to have God remove the defect of resentment. And I would say another warning that I would give to people is I'm 10 stepping a problem, 10 stepping an issue, 
with everybody. The same issue, right? It's like, it's, I, if I start doing a 10 step on the same problem with 10 people in one day, what I'm really doing is talking about my problems. What I'm really doing is spending a lot of time in my problem and not in the solution, right? And if you remember the, the latter part of the 10 step is to ask God to remove it, right? That I should double up on, going to God, asking God to remove it, and then thinking of other people, then being more helpful. So if you've got a resentment, rather than tell 800 people your resentment, tell the one, find out your part, and go help 800 people instead, right? Go think about 800 people instead. Um, you know, I feel like step six really is the work of my lifetime. I practice the behaviors of a person who's free of this defect as best as I can. And I think of it like my abstinent behavior plan, just like in step one, I needed an abstinent food plan. I need to have a food plan if I want God to remove the desire to eat compulsively, which for me is unplanned, undisciplined, unstructured eating. So I need plans, I need discipline, and I need structure. I have to do everything humanly possible. And the same thing with my defects. They don't get removed if I'm still practicing them. If I want resentment removed, I have to stop gossiping and planning. And what is that going to look like? What's my new plan going to be? If I'm in a situation where I would normally be gossiping, I'll tell you for me, I had to make a list of all the things that I'm going to do instead of gossip with, let's say I had a particular person in my life and I was like drawn to gossip with them. I actually had to create for myself a list of what are other things that I can speak about with them? What are other things that we could do together? Because I found that gossiping also became a way that I felt it was explained to me that it's, it's cheap intimacy. It was the way that I felt closer with the person I was gossiping to at the expense of the person we were gossiping about. And that was a cheap form of intimacy. And so if I really wanted to feel closer <clears throat> to a particular person, I could make a list of things that we could do together that I could, that I could model and bring forth in this relationship to do together that might make me feel closer to them. And what I, you know, and a, for me, a really good example was um, I used to gossip a lot with my mom and we had a, we had a shared target. And, and I never thought that I was doing anything wrong here. I really believed that I was, that I was really just my mother. I thought it was all my mother. I would have told you it was 100% her that was the gossip, that she was doing the gossiping. And I was just sort of, you know, I was just participating. I wasn't doing anything. I was like the great victim here. But when I changed what I said and what I did, it changed. And I have to say, like, the person that we used to gossip about, um, uh, when I got out of that mess, it's my mother and my sister, they have gotten so close. 
as a result of me. And it's been a gift. I mean, it's like, you know, I shared yesterday with Janet, I can't believe the way that my mother and my sister, all my life, I always felt like I wish they would get along. I felt like, why, why is this always so difficult? Like I have to be, you know, that was part of, part of my defect too, was I thought I was like, poor me, I'm the victim in this poor, difficult scenario with my mother and my son. And it's not true. It wasn't true. When I changed, they had the opportunity to change and they're close today as a result, right? So their relationship had a chance to heal when I got out of the way. And another way that I, you know, for me, that I, I hang on to my resentments, you know, through self-righteous indignation and justified anger. And, you know, what does that look like? Political arguments, controlling the news, social media outlets, revisiting workplace injustices. And again, I would feel like I was right, like I was the victim. And, you know, I learned also that being right isn't a good enough reason to kill myself over. Like, remember, anger is the dubious luxury of normal men. We're told that, that it is a luxury that I cannot afford because for me, if I'm angry, right, it leads me to that compulsive bite and to eat is to die, right? So anger is best left to other people. And whatever the issue is, it's not a good enough reason for me to kill myself over. And I found that I'm in the greatest danger when I feel entitled to my anger. So then what do I do? How do I demonstrate a willingness to let go of these resentments? Well, for me, um, when there's political hot topics, I stay off social media. I, I have a really great way of remedying that for myself to demonstrate willingness is that when I found that there was people whose political or, or moral or social views were different than mine and they posted them publicly on Facebook, they took a position and a stance. Um, if it really upset me, I could limit how much time I spend on Facebook. And I also found that I can block, they have that preference. That was my willingness that there's a preference that you can block certain types of posts. Not that I had to block the people, but I had to, for myself, just to keep myself out of the malaise. And, um, you know, at one point in the, like when the pandemic first struck, I was so, I was so like riled up by fear, by fear that was a huge defect, by, you know, anger, by why aren't people doing what, what blah, blah, whatever it was I felt at the time. and. The news was like drumming it up for me. Didn't matter which news media I listened to. It was like, it was just, it would get me all worked up and upset. And so I had to make a commitment to watch only, first I started out with 30 minutes a day. I was like, I'm not watching any more than 30 minutes a day. Made a commitment to it. And when I found that I struggled to keep to that commitment, um, I, asked, I asked my husband for help. And it actually turned out that I've just continued to live this way. I basically said, I can't handle the news. I can't handle it. It's too upsetting for me. I get too worked up. If it's really important, can you disseminate the information? Can you just keep me informed enough that, I, that I'm safe and that I'm okay? 
And um, I trust my husband. And it actually turned out it was the best practice I ever did. It relieved me of all of it. And I cared deeply about this world, but I found out um, what helps me better is that I pray. I pray because I don't know the future and I don't know what's best. And, um, and whatever time I've spent searching for information, um, I do what I believe God would have me do. And I, God would have me pray and leave, leave it up to God. And I found, you know what? Um, God created all of us with different skill sets and different capacities and different capabilities. And um, mine is not to debate. Mine is not to be a political, overly political person. Mine is not to have, um, it doesn't mean I don't have opinions. It doesn't mean that I don't can feel a way, but God gave me a very, I think a very small and very specific mission. And this became my mission. And this actually, this group that we're speaking through today came at a time when the rest of the world I felt was worked up myself for a second about what was going on in the world. And when I decided that I was going to let God handle the rest of the world and that I would do what I think he wants me to do. And I think he told, I feel like God said, you know what? Go help people who are suffering from compulsive overeating. Go help there. You got enough. You got enough to do there. And there is enough to do here. It kept me plenty busy. I don't have to worry about what the president's doing. I don't have to worry about what former presidents are doing. I don't have to worry about the government. I don't have to worry about all of it. And maybe it makes me sound naive and, and foolish, um, but this is just what works for me. For me, this was how I quieted my own um, self-righteous indignation, my own fears. This is what I've done. And so, you know, even though I'm willing to have these defects removed, I'm actually powerless to the actual removal of them. I cannot make myself no longer feel something. I'm not able to stop a feeling. I do not have that power. So then what do I do? What do I do when I have feelings? Well, that's where step seven comes in. Just like my defects, what do I do when I have a feeling? Step seven, humbly ask him to remove it. Ask God to remove our shortcomings. Step seven is the em emphasizes humility. And it's something that I fight against. It's not, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't humble myself easily, right? I fight against humility. Um, it goes against my very nature, my need for power, my need for self-importance and true humility is understanding my strengths and my weaknesses. In this case, I'm looking closely at my defects, the things that are keeping me blocked off from a higher power, you know, because I need these things to be removed so that I can get a better connection with God. I saw in my inventory that my defects were keeping my resentments alive. And that always drove me back to the food. Some people, you know, some people call those triggers. And I found that um, I needed the defects removed. And then I found out 
I can't do that on my own. No matter how much work I did, I can't remove my own defects. And that's why I need humility even more, right? In the AA 12 and 12, it says, indeed, the attainment of greater humility is the foundation principle of each of the AA's 12 steps. For without some degree of humility, no alcoholic can stay sober at all. Nearly all AAs have found too that unless they develop much more of this precious quality, then they may be required just for sobriety. They still haven't much chance of becoming truly happy. Without it, they cannot live to much useful purpose or in adversity be able to summon the faith that can meet any emergency. So I need to always be seeking greater humility, right? That's what we're told here, that I've got to seek to be, to have greater humility, to constantly remember that I'm not the power source here, right? It is not my own power. It is a higher power. And step one for me was where I first began to have a real relationship with humility, right? That's what brings us initially is that we knew that we're hopelessly beaten. And so what do we do? We do everything in our power, right? To follow directions, to get a food plan, to eat an agreement. You know, I did this with the understanding that I need God to remove the desire, but I had to do the legwork. And step seven is exactly it. Um, in step six, I became willing to have God remove the defects of character, all the things that were causing me misery and pain that were bringing me back to my compulsion. And I demonstrated this willingness to have my defects removed by practicing a new way of living. And one thing that I was taught to do that I, that I do with others, um, and I think it's very effective is, I, I took my defects, how they were coming out, the, the, the manifestations of them, and I put them down on paper and I wrote out specifically how they looked in my life and what actions I was taking when I was living in the grip of my defects. And then on the other side of the paper, I wrote down what it would look like if I didn't have these defects. What would it be if I lived without them? What, how would that be? And it sort of reminded me, you know, again, like that food plan, it was like, what would it look like if I ate, if I was abstinent, okay, here's what it's gonna look like. What is it gonna look like if I live without the defects? Okay, here's what it's gonna look like. And it was, you know, it was practicing behaviors that were foreign and felt awkward. And I would say at times made my stomach growl, just like being abstinent in the beginning, you're like, oh, I'm hungry. You know, it was sort of that, that thing in the beginning too, with practicing some of these new behaviors, it felt foreign, it felt, odd. It didn't feel like me. And, um, you know, and step seven tells me that um, I can't remove the defects. What That's going to be up to God, but I can cooperate. I can cooperate with God. And what I say is sometimes when we fall down on our, on our behavior plan, right? People are like, oh, I feel such shame. I'm, I'm so full of shame. And I, and I would, suggest to you that when you're filled with shame because you've fallen down on some of your behaviors, 
I would say it's a lack of humility because I love the anachronism that I was taught for shame. Should have already mastered everything. Well, if I've already mastered everything, I wouldn't need a master, but I need the master. I need God. So I'm going to make mistakes. What do I do? I'm going to confess them, right? And then I'm going to go on practicing to the best of my ability, the opposite, what it would look like again. In AA 12 and 12, page 74 says, until now, our lives have been largely devoted to running from pain and problems. We fled from them as from a plague. We never wanted to deal with the fact of suffering. Escape via the bottle was always our solution. You know, so I would suggest that a big part of step seven is understanding that I only increase and prolong my pain when I try to avoid any discomfort at all. That I can't, can't be the avoider of everything uncomfortable, right? Because then I'm really in bondage to my feelings. Then my feelings really are controlling me. Well, today I don't seek discomfort. I don't waste too much time and energy avoiding it either. You know, I, I oftentimes, I would say my discomfort is a signal. It's a message telling me that it's time to let go of an outcome and an expectation. And I have learned that I can feel, here's, here's something, right? I might not tell you, but I can learn, I've learned that I can feel sad. I can feel disappointed. And even the most intense feelings eventually pass and fade. So long as I feel them, so long as I trust God with the messy middle of feeling an uncomfortable feeling. Um, you know, this is where I've, I've learned um, that I can really lean into my higher power. And I can rely on the support that God gives me and the support that God provides for me in the form of other people. Um, I don't believe that I'm supposed to treat my emotions like the trash, that I throw them out as soon as I feel it. Okay, get rid of it really quick. Like, I don't wanna feel that, let me get rid of it. Um, because God, you know, God created humans with feelings. That's part of the human experience. He did create us with feelings, emotions. And feelings are not defects necessarily, right? Sometimes an overwhelming feeling tells me I might have been practicing a defect. But the feelings themselves are not necessarily my problem that I need to discard. My feelings today, while I feel them, they're not the governing forces of my life. They're no longer what I base all of my actions on just because I feel a certain way, right? But I can trust that God will comfort me and bring me humans to comfort me in my most intense feelings. 
Page 76 says, living upon a basis of unsatisfied demands, we were in a state of continual disturbance and frustration. Therefore, no peace was to be had unless we could find a means of reducing these demands. So I prolong my own misery by focusing in on how my demands are not being met. When I have a demand and I'm like, they're not being met, it's not being met it's not being met and how things are not going my way. And I'm learning more and more today that I have more peace when I make requests and not demands. I can ask for something and not demand it. And if I'm bothered by things not going my way, and here's the greatest thing of all, I can ask God to help me let go of having a way. Right? If I'm upset that I'm not getting my way, I can really do my best to stop having a way. I don't have to have a way about everything. I can see how this works so much better in my relationships. I don't feel as resentful. My kids don't do what I want. When I stop wanting so much, it's like I used to have a list of all the things that my kids needed to do, needed to be in order for me to feel okay. And, and I would say at one point I felt justified. Like, ah, shouldn't I want that for my kid? Shouldn't I want that for my kid? And okay, you can, you know, but, um, but if it became a demand, if it became, you know, like Janet says, if it became a demand, it became an idol. It meant I can't be happy unless. And that means it's a demand. I mean, and who am I demanding it from? Well, generally, if it's stuff that's outside of anybody's control, meaning my own, I'm either demanding it from them, I'm setting myself up to have a resentment against those people, or I'm demanding it from God, right? And that means I'm trying to run the show. I'm not submitting myself, not taking a third step. In fact, I'm telling God to take a third step. Here's my plan. You follow it. I've got a demand, right? So I need to work on letting go of having the way. Um, you know, and so what does that look like? I, when I really want something bad enough and it doesn't seem to be happening, I pray, you know? I ask, I ask God, if it be your will, can you decrease the desire decrease the desire. If it's not your will, can you decrease the desire? Can you help me not want it so much? You know, and I, I can see how it works so much better with my relationships. If I, I don't feel as resentful when my children don't do what I want if I don't want, right? Doesn't mean that I don't have any standards or expectations, perhaps a little bit. And yet others meeting my standards and meeting my expectations comes with too great a price, right? Because remember, I'm here because my needs and demands have been insatiable. I've got, I'm a bottomless pit of needs and demands. They're just too great for, to be satisfied. So letting go and relying on God is what humility is. And step seven is a prayer. Step seven is a prayer. It's a request that I make of God and not a demand. And like all the prayers that seem most heartfelt for me, 
I personalize the prayers so that they're authentic requests. When I ask God to remove my defects, I name the defect and I add what I request to be replaced with, right? And, um, you know, it, um, what I, I'm going to just share something really quick because when I often get asked about that um, template, that sort of idea of what it looks like, like if you make a list of the things on one side and what it looks like on the other. So I'm going to try to quickly share my screen of it and see if it, if you're able to see it. Okay, so hopefully you're able to see this. So I had a, a resentment, you know, a um, defect I had was fear, right? And um, and what did it look like? I did a lot of this people-pleasing thing, which is basically manipulation. It's like, I was afraid, so I'm gonna try to manipulate you so I'm not scared. And and so I was afraid that my boss wouldn't like me. This like goes back a long way. Um, now I'm like pretty relieved of that because my boss doesn't like me and I've survived and it's okay. <laughs> but um, I was afraid that my boss wouldn't like me. So I would take on tasks without thinking how it was gonna impact anybody. I didn't ask God if I should be doing it. I didn't ask if my family if it was gonna, didn't, wasn't really interested in my students. I just wanted my boss to like me so I would feel safe so she would get off my back so that maybe I could get away with some things, right? And, and what does that look like if I'm not chasing that? Then I pause before agreeing to take on new tasks that are outside my job description. Like no more committees without getting what's required in writing and then running it by my husband and sponsor. Like saying, you know, I was asked to do this committee and what do you think about it? And pray and I ask God to help me determine if this is a task that's useful for others or is it just status seeking? Was I doing it for the, am I doing it for the wrong reasons? And, um, you know, and then, so what was another thing I would do? Um, I would lie about being sick and needing to take off work, you know, because the weather was bad. And I didn't want people to think I was too scared to drive in the snow. Like that, I have a big commute and I live in an area where they don't plow quickly. And I didn't want my boss to think that I was a chicken. I didn't want my colleagues to think that I was like a wuss or a chicken. So I would lie. Now that's not, an, that I don't, that's, that's not the way that God wants me to be. So what would it look like? Well, if I'm really afraid of driving, you know, fear sometimes is an indication to proceed with caution and avoid something, right? I cannot be dishonest in my workplace. I tell the truth, even if it means I lose a day's pay. I tell the truth. I'm, I'm afraid to drive because the weather is inclement. I say it. And if there's consequences, so be it. But I'm not going to lie. That's manipulating. You know, um, agreeing with people to their face so they won't be upset with me and then talking about them or pouting when I'm not really getting what I want or gossiping to fit in with others. And what is, what is the opposite? Be honest. Even if it makes someone unhappy, I leave the outcomes up to God. No gossip. And when others gossip, it's my responsibility to say something positive. But I'm a woman of integrity, even if it means I don't fit in with the people around me. Trust that God will give me a community. 
God will give me a community where I don't need cheap intimacy anymore, right? Um, you know, I would avoid confrontations and hard conversations and then amputate relationships because it would get too painful, right? Janet taught me that's a peace faker. That's not being, that's not being honest. So I'm not a peace faker. If I need to say something in an effort to bring more love and tolerance to a situation, then I say it. But I do it with dignity and grace and say it in a way that you wouldn't want your grandma you know, that you wouldn't cringe if your grandmother overheard you, right? Or better yet, if the other person's grandmother were there to hear you, that you wouldn't feel embarrassed by it. Um, another way that I demonstrate, you know, that I would do this people pleasing because I was afraid is I would make huge productions and elaborate celebrations because I was trying to impress others. And um, I did this with class plays. I did it with my kids' birthday celebrations. Um, so today, what does that look like? I do things for the right reason. If I'm gonna do a class production, I make sure that it's aligned with the students' needs and personalities. And I found out, you know, my kids hate big parties. They don't like them. So I don't force that on anybody. And those are just, you know, I just, I wanted to just share those because I often get asked, but that's, that's kind of what it looks like. For me, that's what it looks like to be willing to have God remove the defect. And then to the best of my ability, I practice them imperfectly, right? When I mess up, I confess it to God. I ask forgiveness. I tell another person and I, and I do my best. Um, and uh, thanks with that, I'll pass.